I'm Rabbi Ami Hirsch of the Stephen Wise Free Synagogue in New York, and you're listening to In These Times. I love talking to people who are highly intelligent, highly articulate, great experts in their field, and with whom I disagree just enough to make the conversation interesting. I'm not sure if anyone fits those criteria better than Liel Leibovitz, one of the Jewish world's deepest thinkers. Liel is the editor-at-large of Tablet Magazine and the co-founder and editorial director of Tablet Studios, where he produces and co-hosts the weekly Unorthodox podcast and the daily Talmud podcast, Take One. A native Israeli, Liel moved to New York to earn his master's in journalism and his doctorate in communications from Columbia University. His dream? To become a professor, which he did. But the more he interacted with his colleagues, the more he came to realize he was somewhat homeless, ideologically, politically, even religiously. Liel, my friend and teacher, it's such an honor and a joy to have you join me on the podcast today. Welcome to In These Times. Rabbeinu, what a pleasure. Thank you, as always, for having me. Liel, I want to get into really substantive issues with you. You're one of the most lucid and prolific commentators in the Jewish world, and I often nod vigorously in agreement with what you write. Sometimes I disagree, and I want to get into some of that. But beforehand, you have this fascinating background. You were born in Tel Aviv. You lived in Israel for a long time. And you have a unique family experience that I don't think a lot of people know. And it's really fascinating. So could you share a little bit of that before we get into the actual issues? Absolutely. So I am a a ninth generation Israeli. And my father is the oldest son of sort of one of the most prominent families in Israel. So I grew up in this very comfortable life in Herzliya Pituach, right on the beach. And my father had but one goal in his life, which is to make sure that his son, me, I'm an only child, grows up to be a real man. A real man in the Middle Eastern sense, right? In, in, in the only sense that made any sense to my father, <laughs> which is let us go and, and shoot guns. Let us go and drive cars. Let us go and learn how to fight. And, you know, standing there at four or five with a Colt 45 in my hands and and feeling the blowback about to turn my arm out of its socket because I'm a little kid was both strange and exhilarating, but I got the memo very well, which is why when I was in middle school, the person I idolized more than anything probably was this legendary bank robber who started robbing banks all over Israel calling himself the, or people called him, the motorcycle bandit. He would be in and out of banks in 45 seconds. His identity was the subject of much speculation. Us kids assumed he was maybe a Mossad agent gone rogue or an IDF you know, general who wanted to relive his glory days. We had, we had all these great ideas. I dressed up as this guy in Purim, and I would excitedly run back home always to talk to my father about the exploits of this legendary figure, only to one day receive a knock on my door, open it, see three uniformed police officers standing there (laughs) informing me that the motorcycle bandit was my own sweet dad, which changed everything about my life. First of all... Wait, so he hid it from you and your family and your mom? Completely, yes. And all these years you were idolizing the motorcycle bandit and you had no idea that was actually your father? I mean, I would listen to the radio on the bus on the way back from school and there was a breaking news bulletin saying... 
a heist had just occurred and I would get home, run home excitedly, tell my father, who unbeknownst to me had just robbed said bank <laughs> seven, seven minutes earlier, oh my God, did you hear the robber struck again? And he would stand there and look at me with a complete straight face and said, oh no, tell me, I, I had no idea. <laughs> and so he, he lived a double life for two years, something like that, until like every good fairy tale, this one too came to an end. What do you think it was that intrigued him or excited him about robbing banks? He came from a wealthy family. I mean, look, I'm, I'm uh, decidedly cautious about overanalyzing people. I think it is one of the afflictions of our uh, modern moment in time. Uh, but I think it had to do with, with him wanting to assert himself, with him believing that really a man's only true worth was his, was his might, his prowess, his physical strength, his you know, brazenness. Uh, my father was reared on a diet of Steve McQueen, Charles Bronson, and, you know, Paul Newman. And so I think, I think this really excited him. It made him feel present and alive. And at some point he was no longer thrilled because he had done everything he set up to do. And so he kind of let himself get caught, believed erroneously that if he just gave all the money back because he had not spent any of it, he would be forgiven and forgotten. Instead, was sentenced to twenty years in prison, and and my life went from you know lounging by the by the pool in Maui to being cavity searched in prison mm -hmm. every other weekend. So you went to visit every other week for how long was it? How long did he serve? Eventually, I think he served for fourteen and a half. So much of your childhood was visiting your father in prison. Most of my childhood, yes. And when he came out, did he live a good life? Well, Rabbi, what is the good life? I'm joking. Um, <laughs> you know. He's a complicated figure. He like, like very true to his to his shita to his to his rabbinic uh, thought process. He is not one for introspection. He has remarried. He's divorced my mother while in prison. He is a sort of you know, I think it's fair to say full time celebrity. Goes on reality shows, gives talks, does does commercials for banks. It's <laughs> amusing to him. I don't think he spent a lot of time thinking about what he'd done or the weight of it or its impact on the people around him, but he's happy and healthy and young, which is, I suppose, all, all one could ask for. So now getting to your own writing, do you think this unusual childhood experience that you had, did it affect you in intellectual ways? Do you feel that you want to resist conformity, even intellectually, or something along those lines? 100%. Look, I think the um, greatest public health disaster afflicting Americans, but particularly, if I may, American Jews, is prestige addiction, the condition of being deeply, deeply, deeply motivated by how one might be perceived by the ruling institutions, individuals, caste systems of one's society. Before my father was arrested, I was a member in good standing of this very, very privileged class. And all of a sudden, there you are in the very small waiting room of the prison in Ramla, and you're with very different people. And I mean, it took me about, you know, three weeks to understand 100%. These are my people, because Jews from, from, from Moses to Jory Ramon have always been outsiders. And I felt so much more comfortable standing shoulder to shoulder with people who, who didn't have any pretense, who had faith, who had the courage to go through life day by day, and who were just looking at society from the outside in. And I felt, that's, that's me. Can I ask you, 
You spent your childhood in Israel. You went to the IDF. So your entire childhood and teenage years were in Israel. Liel, how do you know English so well? And you write so fluently in English. But what's uh, English? Well, I, uh, <laughs> I, I learned from the TV, I, honestly. I, I watched a lot of TV <laughs> as a kid, and, and I read a lot. I was a, a pretty you know, lonely kid for most of my childhood. And so I would spend my days reading and primarily in English. As for writing, honestly, this will sound like a kind of, you know, strange assumption, but I think Joseph Conrad, to whom I am in no way, shape or form comparing myself, English, I believe, was the second or third language. And I said, it's really easy for me to write in English as well as I do, because I never had to go grocery shopping in English. Mm. It was never a utility. It was always a playground for ideas. You know, one entered when one was ready to think about grand, exciting things. That's, that's very much me. English is my third language, and I'm, I'm, I'm in love with it. It's a fantastic, fantastic way to, to have some fun. I first became especially intrigued with your writing when you wrote about your ideological shift. I might be mischaracterizing your perspective, but I think that you were suggesting that you started out in what we would consider to be a liberal or a left place, and you've had a transition over the course of the past years. Did I state that right, and could you expand on that? Sure. You know... I'm about to say the most solipsistic yet most obvious thing that that pretty much ev- every person who's undergone any form of ideological conversion always says, which is, I didn't change at all. It's the world around me that did, right? Because obviously the world revolves around me. I think as silly and ridiculous and self-aggrandizing as that statement is, in a sense, it is kind of true. There is a, a great meme that I like online that says something like, Am I a racist, transphobic, misogynist, white supremacist, or am I just a normal person from 15 years ago? There is a sense that, you know, the Overton window has been moved radically, and, and some of our discussion has changed so wildly and so profoundly that if you ask the same exact question that you would have asked, you know, 10, 7, 9 years ago, about basic assumptions about American life, you are now considered kind of a, a, a persona non grata. I grew up, you know, very much on the Israeli left, spent much of my childhood rallying, for lack of a better word, for peace. I was just about to go into the army when the Oslo Accords were signed. I then had the misfortune of living through some truly atrocious violence, Palestinian violence, that I saw unfold firsthand. That did not really mar my faith or my belief that this conflict would be resolved, nor did it change my core set of values and ideas. However, moving here and getting my PhD at Columbia University and then going into academia increasingly began to sort of immerse me in in this kind of like strange, misty feeling that something's happening here and what it is ain't exactly clear because all of a sudden, you know, I would say things to my colleagues like, oh, you're starting an Israel discussion group. That's great. You know, I have strong opinions. I serve in the army. I'm an Israeli. I, I know a bunch. I'm, you know, left in good standing. Uh, please, you know, let me come to this discussion group. I'd love to talk to you. Open heart, open mind. And I would hear things like, no, this is a closed group 
only for people who have already reached a certain conclusion. It's like, this is academia. It is supposed to be dedicated to the free and unfettered exchange of ideas. And the more I interacted with my colleagues, the more I understood it simply wasn't so. It was a closed, cultish morass of mutually accrediting mediocrities who were actually not at all interested in, in real discussion and real dialogue. That rang every single one of my alarm bells, especially given my my own you know background and my intolerance for elite groups pretending like their reality is the only feasible reality. And so it wasn't my conversion, quote unquote, my long journey into a political homelessness didn't happen overnight. It wasn't an epiphany. It was years and years and years of of trying to have really difficult conversations and finding people saying, I'm not interested in talking. I'm interested in you affirming what you know we all must believe to be liberals in good standing. Could you give us an example or two of specific issues? What do you mean by that? Look, I think examples abound. Let's have some fun and go to the most controversial among them. Here we are in the midst of COVID and sane, informed people are asking questions and asking to look at data and are told by what appears more like inquisitors and much less like scientists that being a good person means obeying these rules. And you try to have conversations and you try to ask questions as Tablet Magazine, for example, did early on asking about the origins of the virus and the lab leak theory that was immediately silenced as some kind of horrendous xenophobic attempt to portray the Chinese, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Of course, now we know that that was a very valid point of thinking. If you asked any questions about masks, you were immediately portrayed as you know a crazed, rabid anti-vaxxer. If you showed the scientifically proven correct data that shows that children actually were done, a much greater harm was done by masking and isolating kids, social and physical damage, rather than these, you know, precautions that were that were never really necessary. You were you were treated like some lunatic. There ought to have been, at the very least, a much freer debate. There ought to have been much more tolerance for good, well-meaning people who are looking at actual data, not, you know, loonies, who wanted to have these conversations. And there wasn't, not in the Jewish community, not in any other community. And do you think that this phenomenon has intensified over the last 10 or 15 years? In other words, if the pandemic had erupted 15 or 20 years ago, would your critique, in this case of the response to COVID, would your critique have been different? And do you think society would have reacted differently? In other words, is it a sign of the times or just a general state of affairs of the human condition? Look, you hardly have to be a, a Marshall McLuhan to note that most major shifts, kind of epochal shifts in human history, occur shortly after there is a major change in the systems of communication, right? I think our internet technology, its ability to amplify a multitude of voices, <laughs> its very particular economic structures and radical shifts in, in the balance of, of, of who controls access to what, all left us exceedingly vulnerable. I know Alana Newhouse commented on this earlier on this year podcast. 
you know, when the internet came along, and I'm, I'm old enough to remember life before it, we all thought we were getting email. That's Alana's line, right? We all thought like, oh, how great. Now, instead of sending a letter, we could send this great little thing and it will be in our mailboxes. And also maybe we could buy shoes and we won't have to go to the store and life would be grand. We made a very Faustian bargain. And as a result, we now have a society that is deeply fractured, that is steeped in a state of disbelief, that has unreal income inequality, that has created a, for lack of a better term, a blob in which financial interests, government interests, access to information, it's all part of the same sphere. And it is deeply disturbing, deeply unfree, and deeply unhuman. I was steeped and reared on liberal philosophy. And to me, at the center of liberal philosophy is tolerance, an intellectual tolerance and openness to intellectual pluralism and political pluralism. And I consider the mindset, the spirit of a liberal person to be that. But I find especially in modern life, a lot of intolerance on both sides, on what we would characterize as the right and the left. Do you make or can you help us understand the distinction between a liberal and a leftist? I really do mean it when I say that I find these distinctions between left, right, liberalism, progressivism, conservatism, etc., to be completely useless. Uh, I understand the historical role that they played, but to the extent that we are observing something completely new right now, you look at the map and you see people who voted for Barack Obama voting for Trump. You see Trump voters coming from the Bernie camp. Are they left? Are they right? And you're trying to figure what's going on. And I think what's going on, and forgive me for speaking in such centurion terms, I think what's going on is that we're living at the tail end of the Enlightenment. It is very difficult for human beings to imagine that historical eras end, especially the ones you live in right now. But if you look at any history book, you understand that these come in, you know, three to 500 year increments, and then we move on to something else. And part of, of what that means is that this very delicate balance between traditionalism on the one hand, the traditional values, especially Christian values that have kept much of the West's worst instinct in check, and classical liberalism as we know it, the social contract idea that we have to trade away some of our rights for the benefit of some protection, that very, very delicate balance is what enabled us to thrive for, for 250 years at least because we maintain a deep uh, rootedness in our er selves that always craved prayer tribe, belief, these kind of like big, profound human needs on the one hand. And on the other, we had systems in place that kept our, our, our worst appetites, our worst biases at bay. That is all now over. Now, the question is, what replaces it? I have very strong faith, as I know you do, that this belief system of ours that has sustained us for a minute or two now, Judaism, that has seen uh, an empire or six come and go will continue to be as true, as nurturing, and as joyful in the future as it has been in the past. If I've shifted really towards anything, I've shifted much deeper into trusting and finding meaning and joy in Jewish life, which is neither left nor right. Is that new for you? Were you, did you always have this attraction, this deep emotional resonance for Judaism and for our traditional and religious values. You know, I like to joke and say I, uh, I grew up 
a few cheeseburgers removed from the faith of my fathers. My grandmother's grandfather was the great Rabbi Yosef Chaim Zonenfeld, who was perhaps the most prominent Haredi religious leader in pre-state Israel. This was not a man who was tolerant of modernity, to say the least, but a brilliant, brilliant Torah scholar. And so my family, for the most part, is still Haredi. A few of them are what we would call now religious Zionists. But I grew up always very fiercely believing in Hashem, but believing just as fiercely that Hashem was cool if I wanted to try this shrimp cocktail, that Hashem wanted me to be a good person, and that this this kind of ornery insistence on, on the details of observance, that was the stuff that we have shed. I have come to think about things very differently. I've come to find, personally, a tremendous amount of of wisdom and emotional succor in this idea that our practices, mystical and inexplicable as they may be, really do shape our souls. I started keeping kosher one day, I don't know, 12, 10 years ago. Don't ask me why, because I can't explain it. And I love that I can't explain it, because what I can explain is how deeply and fundamentally it changed me, how deeply and fundamentally deciding to pray three times a day changed me, how deeply and fundamentally studying the Talmud has changed me. Those are wonderful practices, and long may they run. Apropos studying the Talmud, your latest book is about that. You called it How the Talmud Can Change Your Life. What led you to want to write that? And did you enjoy writing it? Did it fulfill your expectations when you wrote it? Like every good apocalyptic story, this one dates back to uh, November of 2016, a month many of us have yet to recover from. I was about to turn 40. I decided to run the New York City Marathon for the first time ever. It was an amazing feeling. People were holding signs. Everyone was very cheerful. It was New York at its best. People from all walks of life, all races, all genders, just there to love each other and support each other. This was four or five days before the elections. This was two days. Two days before the election. And I I just had the best feeling. I'm like, everything is going to be great. I am going to turn 40, change a decade into a world that will be markedly better. Tuesday was election night. Wednesday was my birthday. And I'm sitting there like so many of us, absolutely stunned, (laughs) heartbroken, dejected, and completely, you know, in shock. And on Thursday, I say to my wife, look, I, I had the worst birthday ever. Please, let's go out. Like, I need a martini. This, this, I need to wash it off. <laughs> and as I'm holding the drink to my, literally, as I'm taking a sip, I got a text informing me that my um, person, I'm very honored to have called a friend, but also a Rebbe, the late, great Leonard Cohen, passed away. And thus began a long, dark kind of period for me as well as for so many of us in which I felt like I needed to quote the great Leonard, a manual for living with defeat. And the Talmud, it took no time at all to realize, was precisely that. The thing that attracts me the most to this book is the fact that it it, it kind of stems from two amazing insights, right? Here we are in the year 70. The temple uh, was destroyed, which means that Judaism, as it was practiced for 586 years, which is not a short period of time, is now completely impossible because you can no longer go to the temple, offer sacrifice, etc. And so these rabbis are sitting there looking literally at, at, at a sort of like an end horizon type of event. And they have two unbelievable insights. The first is to take the religion and move it to a book. 
Now, that in of itself is an incredible insight, but the rabbis were even smarter than that. And they realized that if they simply just wrote down the rules, people would say a generation or six or eight later, these rules no longer apply. We're moderns now. This is how they used to do it. That doesn't apply to us. And so rather than write down rules, they wrote down arguments. And to open the Talmud and find yourself smack in the middle of an amazing, lively conversation between brilliant, brilliant, brilliant ancestors and feel like there is no resolution, you're right in it, gave me a lot of strength to pick the pieces together and enjoy the wisdom the Talmud has to offer for it touches on every realm of human life. Mm. And the discussion, the arguments, the debates, they extend over centuries. In other words, when you open a page of Talmud, you can jump right into a debate that's been going on for centuries on end. For centuries and centuries. And look, it, it truly is, I make this claim in the, in the opening pages of my book, the Talmud is uh, humanity's first and arguably best self-help book mm-hmm. ever written. It has something to say on how to be a better husband or wife. It has something to say about how to grieve. It has something to say about your body. It has something to say about friendship. Any form of of human pursuit or experience or interest is right here for the taking. And it doesn't tell you what to think about these things. It tells you how to think about these things. It is incredibly precious. And sadly, due to the fact that it's 2,711 pages and often very convoluted in its structure, not many of us understand that this is our heritage and that this is a book to be wrestled with joyfully, not something to be abandoned for only the most pious and bearded among us. You're an astute observer of American society and of our political condition. You mentioned the elections of 2016 and your disorientation at the results. So it looks like the same person will be running again and gain the Republican nomination? Are you still in the same place politically as you were in 2016? How do you see the next year unfolding politically? I don't fully think of Donald Trump as a human being. I think of Donald Trump as a plague. I think he is a old-fashioned biblical plague. You know, Hashem used to uh, convey his displeasure to us with things like frogs or hail, Now he sent us the demon emperor to teach us the error of our ways and force us to construct a better system, to to approach things with more rigor, with more seriousness, with more compassion, with more heart, with more conviction and more commitment. We have clearly, clearly not learned our lesson yet. And so we are uh, doomed (laughs) to repeat it until we do. Now, you may look at it and say that's that's a very grim outlook. Uh, But I actually think that there is tremendous upside to all this because I think the the great shock of the last, you know, X number of years since the 2016 election have sadly caused a lot of good, fine people to lose their goddamn minds. But for every conspiracy-addled, you know, insane person, I find that there are 10 who woke up from a long slumber and realize now that they oughtn't wait for the executive branch or their local congressman or senator or corporate America to shape their lives, that there is a lot of work to be done and that they oughtn't to be consumers, but rather citizens, which is why we're seeing so many people doing so many incredible things like buying land, growing vegetables, forming study groups, being there for one another. I think that's wonderful. 
And I see much more of that than I do the kind of mad swirling of our you know, elite chattering classes in universities and newsrooms. So when you write about the turn and how people who were friends of yours and ideological soulmates, how they felt differently than you or maybe even left you or you left them, do you still have the same view on Donald Trump as you did in 2016? Unchanged, one for one. Literally, the, 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 the plague uh, analogy is one that I used very shortly after his election. But, but here's the thing that really saddens me. You said, you know, people who left you or you left them. I didn't leave anybody. In fact, in this piece that I wrote, The Turn, I began the piece with... Um, you talked about how it generated a sense of loneliness for you. Completely. But, but, but because... L- let, me, let, me, let me answer the question of the story. I had a very, very dear friend who sadly passed away who was uh, my mentor at Columbia and someone who I felt was, was truly you know, a member of my family who, as I was turning, I suppose, asking questions that no longer seemed you know, appropriate in, in the ever-hardening political climate, took me out to lunch one day and said to me very bluntly and before the appetizers even arrived, you know, a lot of people are really beginning to be very troubled by the way you're talking these days. And the thing that really struck me wasn't what he said, which sounded Soviet and bizarre on, on its own merit. You know, comrade, people in the party are saying you're saying inapproved speech. It was how he said it. It was the complete lack of love, you know? He wasn't being kind and soft and saying, hey, man, like, I love you and I just want to make sure everything's okay or I want, to, I want to make sure that you're not hurt. It was a sort of like, you know, shape up or get out type of vibe. I have lost quite a few friends over this and, and I'm not alone. I know a bunch of other people who all of a sudden found themselves politically homeless and as a result kind of get the, you know, the, the cold shoulder uh, in their former social settings and nothing is more disappointing, uh, heartbreaking, and, 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 you know, frankly, odious than looking at a, at, a, at a fellow human being, a friend, and deciding that because that person espouses political views that you don't agree with, they are a bad person. Sadly, the entire discourse right now is precisely that. That is the greatest heartbreak of them all. Which leads me to ask you about what's happening in American universities, including our elite universities. I know that you have a lot of thoughts in this regard. You've written about the American universities at length. I need two words, Ami, honestly. The two words are get out. It's, it's no longer what it used to be. It's not good, and it's never coming back. Get out? You're, you're talking about getting out of universities at all, or get out of the rat race to get to the best universities or the ones that are considered the best? No, 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 no. I, I, I fully, fully believe that none of us ought to send their children to college at the moment. I say this to my children who are 12 and 10, three times a week. You are never going to college because American universities, and this is true pretty much across the board, from Harvard to Arizona State University, you will find little else but bands, as I said before, of mutually accrediting mediocrities who close ranks, who stifle any attempt at, at free speech, at divergent thought, at free and unfettered exploration, who are using their prestige not to educate but to indoctrinate, and furthermore, whose values are diametrically opposed to anything Jews of any stripe believe. 
college campuses right now are intolerant of faith. They're intolerant of any identity that is not in the kind of, you know, pre-approved mosaic of identities that comprise so much of the of the current progressive left. And so to spend a quarter of a million dollars or more to send your child to a morally and intellectually hostile environment is folly. The only explanation to do this, and this is the thing that I hear from parents increasingly, well, what do you want? But, you know, Timmy needs a job. I understand. However, increasingly, we're seeing that even that is not true because, A, the quality of education that you get in universities uh, increasingly decreases. The department I taught at at NYU had something like 70% of all classes taught by adjuncts who earned something like $500 a class a semester. And second of all, much more importantly, our key industries are increasingly kind of glomming onto the fact that this liberal arts education that you and me and so many others so dearly revered actually is not a necessity for the digital economy which is why Google and Facebook and Apple and all those great places where you really want to work and want your kids to work at no longer require college degrees. Let me press you on that, Leo. You have a bachelor's degree from Tel Aviv University and a master's and a PhD from Columbia. You're a PhD, leaving aside all of the politics. And it wasn't too long ago. You earned your PhD about what year? 2007. Okay, call it 16, 16 and a half years ago. So aside from the political observations that you mentioned, which some people would disagree with, but even leaving aside that for argument's sake, do you think, Liel, that you would be the person you are now in love with ideas, challenging, eloquent, capable of deep philosophical thought, had you not had a good high school education, elementary school education, but in particular a BA, a master's, and a PhD from an elite American university? You don't think you got anything from all of those years of study that made you a deeper person, a more intellectually mature person? I can make two arguments here, and I think both are partially true. The first is that I really was the last generation in the party. I was still privileged to study with a lot of uh, the old guard, people who truly believed and were deeply committed to it. And again, remember, I, I dedicated my life to this. I mean, my, my life's dream was to be a professor, and then a terrible thing happened. It came true. <laughs> I was really lucky to be there with people in an environment that still believed very fiercely to stand up and say something, quote unquote, offensive, to try and ask, you know, strange and uncustomary questions was the mark of a, of a free and curious mind, not the mark of a partisan rebel who had to be eliminated. That is my first answer to this question. The second answer to this question, and I think the most important one, is that you made a really important distinction, perhaps without even noticing it in, in your question, between the institutions and the notion of education. I am 100% the product of the education that I was fortunate enough to receive. However, the education occurred on, on a multitude of levels, including, by the way, exposure to, to great books, which happened via all sorts of arrangements. And I want to make sure that I am understood because my, my attitude to this question is not destructive and negative. It's tremendously hopeful and, and positive. I believe the current university system, which is a product of a very specific moment in, in time and a set of historical you know, socioeconomic constructs, is gone. But I think what will replace it will be a different take on education. Let me give you an example which I find tremendously inspiring. 
Our Haredi brothers and sisters have this institution called the Kolel. It's an institution that selects the best and the brightest from every community, pays for their education on the condition that they then, A, remain in the community rather than, you know, kind of toddle off to some uh, coastal city and, and no longer see themselves as tethered to their home. And B, most importantly, teach classes to the doctors and the dentists and the teachers who, at the end of the day, want to sit down and, and hear a little lesson about history or about religion or about what have you. Imagine a community that actually lives according to these values. Imagine rather than sending your kid to Princeton or Yale or Harvard to be indoctrinated in a very monochromatic kind of ideological worldview, you would send your bright kid down the street to actually learn incredible things and then teach you and teach the community and, and have an institution that is truly a public university. Mm. There are amazing things to be done. But first we have, again, we have to cure ourselves of the prestige addiction. We have to cure ourselves of the thought that life would be over unless we would send our kids to school, that we won't have a good education unless we send our kids to university, that we won't get a job unless we send our kids to university. That is simply not true. I can tell you, Liel, from my own personal experience, I wouldn't have become the person I am in any way had I not gone to law school at the London School of Economics. It's the first time that I actually sat down and took any kind of higher education seriously. I mean, I got through high school. I, I was okay. I ended up with really good grades, but I wasn't serious. And then I had three years in the military and the IDF. And I ended up in London alone for the first time in my life. I was 21 years old. So I was a little older than my classmates. And I think, as you know, in Europe, you go straight to law school. It's an undergraduate degree. It's not like here. But I can tell you, it's been, call it 40 years, and I still remember those years as among the best of my life. It just changed me. It opened my eyes to ideas and to philosophy. And then after a few years, I went to rabbinical school, and there's no way I would have acquired what I have learned in terms of my approach to Judaism had it not been for rabbinical school. So I can tell you, for me, and then when it came to my daughter. I never would have contemplated not going to university. I do realize that there are many, many people who are not suitable for university. And today you can do a lot without a university degree. And I recognize the flaws and weaknesses in the higher educational system in the United States that you're describing and that you write about with great eloquence. Don't you have a little charity, at least in your heart, in your prodigious mind? Not a little, a lot, the whole gamut. And... Because I share this passion of yours and because like you, I look very fondly at the experience in education that I was very fortunate to acquire, because this great love and great gratitude still burn within me, it is precisely because of, of those very positive emotions that I absolutely refuse to accept the deterioration, the ruination, the irredeemable, irreversible destruction of these institutions on which we depended. And if I believed for one moment that the system as it stands was redeemable, I would spend every breath I had doing it. The universities have been at the very center of this enormous tension in the aftermath of October 7th. What do you think about young American Jews who don't see what you and I see very clearly? And what are your, what are your thoughts about 
the university scene since October 7th? It gives me very little satisfaction, truly, to watch the kind of maelstrom that I've been describing for, you know, about six years now, taking flight so rapidly and so furiously in the aftermath of, of October 7th. I think that whereas some of us realize the extent and the depth of the institutional systemic rot of American higher education, most American Jews were willing to live with some kind of notion that it's not all universities, it's just some professors, it's not all faculties, it's just you know the liberal arts, it's not all administrators, it's just a handful. To see these formerly great institutions become feverish swamps of Jew hatred, to see them house Hamas demonstrations, to see violence against Jewish students percolate on campus after campus, and to see university presidents of two of our most celebrated uh, institutions have to resign in disgrace for their inability to do the simplest thing as just to say, hey, hating Jews and being violent against Jews, that's wrong. Uh, that comes as a shock to many American Jews. Uh, permit me for a second a touch of optimism. I don't wish to be like those, you know, old sour radicals of the 60s who believed like Lenin that the worse things are, the better they are because people see the, the ways of the oppressor. But when I see Harvard's early admissions application rates drop precipitously, when I see people who year after year and warning after warning continue to give money and time and energy and talent to these universities, all of a sudden quit en masse and in disgust and saying, you're not getting anything from us. When I see, you know, parents and, and friends say, you know what, I'm going to apply to Yeshiva University. That gives me tremendous hope. I think that what we're seeing right now on American campuses would be the first known vaccine to this great public health crisis, this addiction to prestige. I think that American Jews, even some young ones, understand that these institutions are no longer delivering on any of these promises, and as a result, are walking away. Would they walk away far enough, fast enough, and in sufficient numbers? Maybe. But at least we have an opening to a conversation right now, whereas four months ago, we had none. We're now three months into the war since October 7th. I think it will be a day that will live in infamy in Jewish history, I think, even a thousand years from now, that Jews will mark this day in some way. You've been to Israel. What are your impressions? What, what, do, what do you think we should know? Well, I think it's a question of great magnitude, and it's a question that we will spend the next hundred or thousand years trying to answer. But I would answer it in the most banal and yet profound way imaginable which is to say that anyone who has doubted the strength, resilience, and love that we have for one another has been disabused of any illusions. The divisions that we have are very real and very profound, and yet when the worst imaginable occurs, our ability to just spring to action is simply astonishing. I mean, I've written very critically of the protest movement opposing the judicial reform. I took issue with their goals. I took issue with their tactics. And yet the moment that this happened, these guys led by a group called Brothers in Arms, 
They arranged for housing for people who were left homeless. They arranged for education for kids that were left without any educational infrastructure. They arranged for clothing. This great ability to put differences aside is something that I continue to find very inspiring. That having been said, three months in, I think we're beginning to see that this war isn't just a war between Israel and Hamas. It is not even just a war between the so-called axis of resistance of Iran, Russia, and China, and the Western world. But it really is a sort of world historical test of the ability of the Jews to answer a bunch of fundamental foundational questions that we raised at the earliest days of the Zionist movement. Questions of just what we want this land of ours to look like and how far we're willing to go to secure it. I totally agree. Uh, You and I have both been uh, to Israel since October 7th. And my impressions are your impressions. We, We met some of the same people when we were there. And it's just astonishing. There's some unbelievable strength at the core of Israeliness and Jewishness that sometimes uh, we underestimate and don't give enough credit to. Do you think, having said that, that American Jews understand what's at stake as Israelis do? You know, that there's a law that every Jewish conversation cannot contain more than, say, 13% cheerfulness or else we just absolutely have to edit everything out. Uh, let, let me let me take uh, issue with this with this question and answer by saying that not only am I not certain that American Jews understand what's at stake, I think many Israelis too uh, are understanding what's at stake. Honestly, for the first time, the thing that crashed on October seventh wasn't just some conceptia, as they like to say in the army. What collapsed on October seventh? is a story that Israelis have been telling themselves for two and a half decades now, a story that a vast portion of American Jews have been telling themselves too, a story that the main thrust of Israeli history revolves around this axis called the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, that one nation's national aspirations are a mirror image of another nation's national aspirations, And that the game right now is trying to find some kind of balance, some kind of compromise that would allow these two nations to live side by side. It is the main kind of current behind the idea that while Hamas may be a murderous terrorist organization, it is also a de facto form of government of a de facto state that has all the characteristic of a kind of viable independent sovereign nation. And therefore, if we only produce the correct number of work permits, the correct number of trucks that are allowed back and forth, the correct number of lenient agreements and arrangements, these people, while not inclined to make peace with us, will at least refrain from slaughtering us. That ended at approximately 6.30 a.m. on the morning of October 7th. It made it very clear to the Israelis that on the other side, We have a murderous foe. And furthermore, that this murderous foe is supported by a vast proportion of the civilian population that, as we saw, and this is the most heartbreaking thing of all, sort of gleefully partook, not just in supporting the murderers, but sometimes in the murders and kidnappings themselves. It is very difficult to to come back from, from such a realization, in large part because it necessitates 
completely changing everything we thought we knew about the situation and in turn also our response. And so what we must now do, and it is a very deep and dark realization, is actually fight a war against an enemy that is hellbent on our extinction. I agree with you. I One of the things that I did was interviewed several dozen people when I was in Israel. I sent dispatches back to America. And I interviewed a lot of people who were survivors of those settlements near the Gaza border. As you know, many of them, if not most of them, were peaceniks. And to a person, practically, they described it with great pain, but with a new realization that they don't think that uh, there can be the kind of peace that they expected with their Palestinian neighbors who live a kilometer away on the other side of the border. So that's another conception that collapsed to the extent that there was anything left of some kind of two-state solution in Israel, some kind of support of this type of coexistence with the Palestinians that seemed to have collapsed, whether permanently or for a very long time. It's hard to say, but it's no longer part of the Israeli discussion, I don't think. Look, having been reared in the warm and I should say loving bosom of of the Israeli peace movement, it's heartbreaking. It was perhaps the most saddening and crushing realization walking the pathways of these kibbutzim and talking to these survivors as you had and realized that so many of these attacks of these horrendous massacres were made possible by the fact that Palestinians who had worked in these communities for decades knew precisely where everyone lived, where the weapons were, what the routines were, the schedules were, delivered real detailed information that allowed these attacks to be so crushing. To hear these these lovely humans living in the shadow of, of never-ending rocket barrages and yet thought that peace was possible, to hear them say things like, I don't believe it anymore and I'm going to get a gun, is truly a kind of shocking and deeply saddening recognition. On the other hand, one that is also sadly absolutely necessary, the question is, can Israeli society as a whole, and even more intriguingly, can the American Jewish community support this? Can we support an Israel that stands up and does things that we view as harsh and even hopeless, declaring that there is no end in sight to this conflict, declaring that it now believes that the Palestinians actually don't want peaceful coexistence in, in, in nation, they just want us dead, and therefore we have to recalibrate our aims. Can American Jews remain tethered to this Israel? And in a strange and kind of real disconcerting way, this brings us back to the earliest days of the Zionist movement, to these endless debates on what we are willing to do to have this dream of being Am of a free people in our homeland. How far are we willing to go and, and how great the price of maintaining our independence? Liel, here's my last question. Can you give to all of the listeners a message for the year, for our communal life in the United States? What should we be focusing on? What should we be developing to become better people? Look, I think the answer is really simple. I think it begins with the recognition that one can never actually be Jewish. One must always do Jewish. So my answer is very simple. Have faith, have fun, and do one more Jewish thing, one more mitzvah today than you did yesterday. I know it sounds very Chabad-like, but whatever rocks your boat. If you like reading books, 
you know, pick up a copy of the Talmud or a very good new book about the Talmud. If you like, you know, practices, pick up some mitzvah that you haven't done before. Invite another Jew for Shabbos dinner. Do something communal. Do something to serve others. You will be shocked, surprised and delighted how much meaning, truth and joy there is in living life like that. This has been an amazing conversation, Leo. I want to thank you very much and urge you to continue to do what you do. And you do it so well. Challenge us, provoke us, cause us to nod vigorously in agreement. And if, knowing you, if from time to time we also shake our heads in some disagreement, that's a compliment for you too. My friend, I've learned from the best. I am grateful to you, not just for this incredible conversation, but for your courage to stand up and ask some pretty difficult questions yourself. I could spend hours responding to a wide range of topics Liel raised. In the limited time I have, I want to focus on his comments regarding the impact that ritual, study, and worship have had on him. Liel emphasized that one must always do Jewish, not simply be or think Jewish. He captured one of the essential elements of Judaism. Nowadays, especially in the non-Orthodox community, which is the vast majority of the Jewish world. It is common to view religion as more of an inspirational exercise than a system of obligations. Compared to the Israelites, who were in awe of the two tablets of stone, revering and fearing their awesome power, modern people consider the Ten Commandments more like the Ten Suggestions. People do what they feel like doing today. We are constantly told that no one should judge another, preach to another, or impose obligations on another. The sense of commandment, obligation, seems very outdated to us, almost pre-modern. Maimonides taught that every Jew is required to study Torah, whether rich or poor, healthy or sick, young or old. Even a beggar who goes from door to door must devote time to Torah, wrote the great sage. Until when is one required to study Torah, asked Maimonides? Until the day of death. But today, most modern Jews chafe at behavioral requirements. Come on, who needs this? Modern life is about me. Me, me, my feelings, my needs, my advancement, my gratification, my spirit, my life, my choices, my decisions, my family. If I want, I do. If I don't want, who is anyone? Who are you? Who is Maimonides? Who is Moses? Who is God to tell me what to do? Are you saying that I'm not a good Jew if I don't study every day? One of the interesting questions of Judaism was where should a child begin Torah study? With what topic, what Torah passage, what prayer? The answer was, every Jewish child should begin their studies with Leviticus. The sages explain, as children are pure, so they should first study the laws of purity. They study the laws of purity and begin to realize that purity is in doing, not simply thinking or feeling. Holiness is in action, not only contemplation or meditation. You don't start with an inspiration. I'm really, really inspired to study Torah every day. First you do. Then, hopefully, you'll be inspired. You do first, and then you understand. You build first, and then you gain inspiration. It is a unique Jewish approach to the world. We don't start with faith. We start with a desire to build the path to faith. We don't start with inspiration. We start with creating space for inspiration. Judaism insisted that it's not enough to feel. While we are sympathetic to what goes on in your heart, we care more about what you do than what you feel. We never interpreted love your neighbor as yourself, as feeling something. It was all about treating our neighbor properly. It was all about deeds. 
Jews believe that most people have it wrong. They have it in reverse. We believe that inner improvement does not begin with inner thoughts, but with outer actions. We do not believe, as most people do, that actions follow beliefs. We conclude the opposite, that in most cases, beliefs follow actions. Good intentions are desirable, but good outcomes are required. A good person is defined not by what she thinks, but by what she does. Piety in Judaism is in performance. And even if what motivates us is to be good, moral, decent human beings, still, Judaism insists that we must practice how to be good. We must do morality, not merely think about it. Judaism asserts that in the real world, it is not altruism, but duty and habit that motivate most people. The word mitzvah in Hebrew does not simply mean a good deed if the spirit moves you, but describes obligation, commandment, a sense of duty, an embrace of responsibility. It's not enough to feel. In truth, human beings have a limited capacity to feel the hardships of others. Millions of people die every year of poverty-related illnesses. Do we feel that as intensely as the death of our beloved pet? Our tradition insisted on performing acts of kindness, becoming accustomed, habituated to moral, magnanimous, and merciful deeds. They realized that the more we do, the more we accept the need for doing. Habits and routines influence philosophy. Jewish sages emphasized that what may have started out as an act without understanding, over time, generates understanding. The habit of giving charity eventually changes the way we feel about charity. In essence, rabbinical Judaism is concerned with behavior. The sages sought to adorn the few years of our lives with honor, meaning, and purpose. The rabbinic tradition's aim is to create a moral system of behavior that will allow us to derive as much meaning, enjoyment, empowerment, and accomplishment as possible. In Judaism, deeds count the most. Action is eloquence. So, as Liel said, don't just sit there. Do something Jewish. Study Torah, worship, light Shabbat candles, say a prayer over wine and bread, make sure your children watch you, do acts of loving kindness, join the centuries-old Jewish debates, open a page of Talmud and jump right in. You'll enjoy it. Until next time, this is In These Times. Thank you.